Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. It seems like everything we hear today is nothing but doom and gloom. Every commentator on TV, every internet news site, every newspaper, every social media site, we only hear what's wrong in the world. What we need is something uplifting, something to heighten our mood. Put simply, we need some positivity. And I'm here to help. On today's episode, we're going to stop worrying about having to wear multiple layers to stay warm. Then we'll all get a little help on our diets. And finally, we'll discover a little secret that will not only keep us safe, but also bring us closer together. So spread on the highest SPF sunblock you can find, pull out that box of skinny clothes, and try to put your claustrophobia behind you. Because I'm happy to report that here we go. Hey, have you guys stepped outside in the last few weeks? I mean, as an introvert, if I didn't have to, eh, I probably wouldn't. But alas, my employer wants me to work to make money so I can feed my addiction of eating and paying the electric bill so I can live in a heavily conditioned airspace. Yeah, look, it's hot out there, okay? I don't think I'm revealing any deep hidden secret there. It's just flipping hot. I was recently in the Southwest, and out of the eight days I was there, I think we had one day that was under 100 degrees American, and nearly every day had a heat index of 105 degrees or more. I grew up as a Wisconsin boy. That ain't good. You step outside, and when you're finally able to breathe enough to get some fresh, superheated oxygen to go in and sear your lungs, you realize that you're literally melting. Like the Wicked Witch, except you wish someone could throw water on you. Unfortunately, water doesn't travel that far in the air. It just turns to steam and poof, it's gone long before it ever reaches you. Now, I'm being a bit dramatic. Just, just a bit. Truth is, where I was, it was hot. And it's been a sustained hot, dry month. But this isn't anything overly unusual. Most people in that region go on about their business because they knew it was going to be hot this summer, because it was hot last summer, and it'll be hot next summer. Europe, however, do you realize how far north the vacation countries of Europe are? You know, like France and Spain, Italy, the UK. Look on a map, like a world map, not a U.S. map. If you use a U.S. map to find them, you'll never find them, believe me. (laughs) I know. Italy is the farthest south out of that small group. If you slid it over on top of North America, first of all, a lot of people would be very shocked, plus there'd probably be a lot of damage that would have happened, but but second, it would stretch from about southern Missouri to the top of the upper peninsula of Michigan. Moving north a bit, Spain would cover from south to north about the same as Utah or Nevada. The very summer holiday-sounding south of France basically lines up with the southern border of Minnesota, with the top of it stretching up into Winnipeg, Canada, eh? And the UK. I mean, I guess I never thought about this. It starts where Winnipeg is in the south of Canada, 
and reaches to about midway up the giant communist run by dictator Justin Trudeau country. This lack of geographical knowledge on my part is why I was surprised when I looked at the average temperatures of these countries in the peak of summer, the July-August time frame. Working from south to north again, Italy runs at an average maximum of 87 degrees American. Spain generally maxes out about 74 degrees. France touches a balmy 70 degrees max. And the UK is a nice, comfortable shorts and sandals, work on your tan, maximum average peak of 66 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. So when you're experiencing temperatures of about 100 degrees in England for a day or two, that's not what they bargained for. But according to the weather forecast, the temperature should drop by about 20 degrees tomorrow. That's as of the 19th, the day that I'm actually recording this. And then kind of hover around 80 degrees, plus or minus a few for the rest of the month, which is still quite a bit hotter than normal, but that's at least not oppressive heat in a country that's really ill-prepared for even a two-day extreme heat event. Now, two large outcomes of this heat are making the headlines. First of all, deaths, of which there are over 1,000 that are being claimed due to the heat, and then wildfires raging across France, Portugal, and Spain, and others. Now, remember, it used to be that increased hurricanes, increased tornadoes, increased El Nino activity, increased temperatures, all of that used to be called global warming, and we were all supposed to be terrified of the impending doom. But because we didn't have increased activity of the right kind, it then changed to increased or decreased or the same levels of absolutely everything is climate change, which absolutely means seas will rise, polar bears will die, and the world will crack in half or something. But but when a couple days of extreme heat accompanied with raging fires presents itself, well, the climate propagandists and their slobbering media lapdogs get all worked up. What better way to instill more fear in people than to have absolute proof that the planet is just bursting into flames because you want to keep your AC at a number lower than 78 and drive your nature-murdering exhaust mobile? Let me give you some of the headlines I found, and when I say found, I mean that I clicked on a story on a news ribbon, and these were all the other stories that were also suggested for me. So, headlines, found on UPI.com, historic heat wave sparks wildfires in France, Portugal, Spain. Found on abcnews.go.com, fires scorch Spain and France, where flames reach the beach. Found on CBSNews.com, fires scorch France and Spain as temperature-related deaths soar in European heatwave. Found on BBC.com, more evacuations as Mediterranean wildfires spread. Found on Reuters.com, wildfires rage in France and Spain as heatwaves sear Europe. Found on Space.com, satellites capture Europe broiling in record-breaking heat wave. Now, what we can surmise from these headlines is that because of the heat, the European continent is being burned to the ground, with only the ocean stopping it from ravaging the entire planet. If you look into these articles, you'll basically find the same type of stuff. Fires raging, some in control, some not, 
thousands being evacuated, tourist areas threatened, firefighters struggling, airplanes waterbombing, etc., etc. And of course, all articles imply, most but not all state, the cause of this is, of course, climate change. According to ABC13.com, Quote, images of flames racing toward a French beach and Britons sweltering, even at the seaside, have driven home concerns about climate change. Also on the same site, quote, the increase in the frequency and intensity of heat waves and other extreme weather events is the result of climate change, and these impacts will continue to grow unless the world drastically reduces emissions. And also on that same article, quote, drought and heat waves tied to climate change have also made wildfires harder to fight. Space.com says, quote, the heat wave comes after Europe's second hottest June in recorded history and is seen by many experts as a testimony of the profound climate change effects already in place, as well as a warning of what is to come for the continent, which is known to warm faster than the rest of the world. BBC.com states, quote, heat waves have become more frequent, more intense, and last longer because of human-induced climate change. The world has already warmed by about 1.1 C since the industrial era began, and temperatures will keep rising unless governments around the world make steep cuts to carbon emissions. ABCnews.com adds, quote, Fire season has hit parts of Europe earlier than usual this year after a dry, hot spring that the European Union has attributed to climate change. Are we sensing a trend here? Now, I know that 1.1 degrees doesn't sound like much, but remember, that's a metric measurement. There is no possible way for us to convert to know what that means, at least not that I know of, so we logically need to approach this from a different direction to really understand what's going on. Let's take a look at the facts. We know that the planetary heat has increased. We also know that the European forests are bursting into flame because of that heat. And and that's what we know. Those are the facts we know. And it makes sense. As per the fire triangle, we know that all we need is oxygen, fuel, and heat. Now, looking up the spontaneous combustion temperature of wood, I found on reference.com that wood bursts into flame between 190 degrees and 260 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, more metric. Okay. But decayed wood ignites at 150 degrees Celsius. So what can we surmise, making the assumption that these countries also haven't done controlled burns and cleared forests and decaying undergrowth, much like the United States stupidly hasn't done, is that the global temperature, at least in Europe, has increased apparently from 148.9 degrees to 150 degrees since the industrial era, you know, the the 1.1 degree increase we're all lamenting. But as nobody in the free world knows what Celsius means in real temperature degrees, I guess I'll try to math out what this means in Fahrenheit. Well, after doing some duck-duck going, we have a conundrum. Apparently, a 1.1 degree C change is the same as a, a 2 degree Fahrenheit change. That's that's not a lot. We also find out that 150 degrees Celsius is the same as 302 degrees Fahrenheit, and I think you'd agree with me when I say that's that's simply just too hot. If those in Europe are trying to work and live in vacation in 300 degree temperatures, I mean, that, that's just too many degrees. 
Now, I did find one interesting, you know, minor little factoid in the UPI article. Hardly anything to worry about, probably, but I'll throw it out there anyway. The article said, quote, French premier Elizabeth Bourne said a fire in La Testa de Butch in Gironde department was caused by an electric vehicle. Huh. So here's the deal. Is the planet warming? Not maybe. Is the planet bursting into flames because of the heat? No, no, the, the heat isn't really even sustaining the fire. It really doesn't have anything to do with anything, except maybe drying the undergrowth and decaying brush slightly faster. But once ignited, say, by an electric vehicle, even with an ambient temperature of uh, 40 degrees F, the fire would rage on. The sustaining heat is generated by the fire itself. The oxygen and fuel are the same. In fact, the oxygen, using real science is more dense the colder you get. This is why the old carbureted snowmobiles ran the best in negative temperatures. It's the oxygen content of the air was more dense, so colder weather would technically fuel the fire more. Probably negligible, though. But what we know is that these fires need to have a source of heat hot enough to start the stuff burning. So it needs a spark, or a flame, or an arc, or a 1.21 gigawatt bolt of lightning. It needs something other than somewhat elevated temperatures, or else the entire southwest of the United States would just burn all summer. And their summers are from like March to November. I kind of think people would, you know, not live there if it was just a constantly burning hellscape. The optics, though, are much better. A few unusually hot days and fires, the chance to use those optics to push an agenda of climate change will not be passed up by the agenda pushers, regardless of the truth. What would it be like to live in a world where people just spoke plainly, let their yes be yes, their no be no? Can you imagine a world where the evening news, and yes, that still exists, I verify this a couple times a year when I visit my parents, because my dad is one of the last remaining handful of humans that views the evening news. But can you imagine what it would be like to turn on the news and be told the truth, with no slant, no spin, no agenda? Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Now, in a sinful world, I'm not sure that there is anyone that can claim perfect adherence to this. I'll be the first to admit my failing. But can you imagine what it would be like to have a news anchor or a commentator or a website reporter grab hold of this one verse and live by it? But it seems like what we're doing is having a competition to see who can do the opposite of this verse as much as possible. And this is more blatantly seen on the left, but it's also being done on the right. Now, to bring this segment to a close, join me in a little short thought experiment. Think of this. In eternity, the earth remade perfect, sin and death destroyed, we will still not have all knowledge of all things at all time going on all over the earth. We won't be omniscient. We'll be in a glorified form of some sort, but we'll be glorified forms of humans. We won't be gods. And I think the consensus is, is that we'll have jobs to do. We won't just be floating around on clouds playing harps, which, thank goodness, is, that just sounds awful. We'll be tending the earth. And I tend to believe we'll be growing and learning and trying things and experimenting and on and on. So will we have news reporters? Will we have people that will gather all of the amazing things going on around the perfect earth, reporting all of the God-glorifying stuff that's happening? Maybe right? It's kind of fun to speculate, but what I can say for sure is that if that were the case, 
We wouldn't have any more fear porn, no more agenda-driven stories, no spin, no carefully crafted narratives, no slant, just honest reports of true events, all glorifying God. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah, but until then, get the highest SPF sunblock you can and stay on your toes, especially if you live in the Southwest, because the earth around you will very likely burst into flames at any moment. This cannot stand. I'm going to try to compose myself during this review, but I'll beg your forgiveness beforehand if I just absolutely lose it. We've discussed some pretty serious things in this podcast, and might I add, it's been done with grace, charm, and rapier wit. Humor, benevolence, fairness, but I do go on. Elegance, eloquence, patience, and other answers. But this article, this issue that will affect the global population, may be the proverbial straw that breaks the already grossly overloaded camel's lower back. Found on MSN.com headline, Lawsuit claims Skittles contain toxin and are unsafe to eat. Please, please... Try to control your outrage. The opening sentence of the article gives us the gist of what's going on. Quote, a new lawsuit filed by a consumer in California claims Skittles are unsafe to eat because they contain a chemical the company had pledged to remove. So a class action lawsuit was filed in federal court brought by Janiel Thames, who I can't find any info on, and yes, I tried. She, well... I'm assuming she, although I think we all know my current biologist status, claims that Skittles contains, quote, heightened levels of titanium dioxide. This is not a chemical that's banned in the United States. It is being banned in the European Union as of August 7th of this year, and the FDA does have a usage limit of 1% by weight in foods. The lawsuit said that Skittles violates California's consumer protection laws, With regard to Skittles, titanium dioxide is used in the coloration, or more specifically, the brightness of the coloration of the candy. The lawsuit claims that other brightly colored candy does not use this chemical. Mars Inc., the parent company, admitted in 2016 that they did use titanium dioxide and said that the plans were to remove it and move to all natural colorants in five years. But the claim is that this has not been complied with as of yet, And doing the math, carrying the 9, multiply by the inverse square root of pi, divide my current weight. Yes, it's been more than five years. The complaint stated that, quote, a reasonable consumer would expect that Skittles can be safely purchased and consumed as marketed and sold. However, the products are not safe. So, what's not safe about them? The claim is that it can cause damage to DNA, the brain, and other organs. Now, I know that Anthony Fauci, seeing that this can cause damage to DNA, the brain, and other organs, is probably breathing very heavily right now. But no, we do not need brightly colored vaccines. Or do we? Apparently, the particle size is small, nanoparticle size, and the claim is that it can pass through the filters of the kidneys pass through the intestines, and can cross the blood-brain barrier. So what is titanium dioxide? According to the site chemicals.ie, this is an inorganic, naturally occurring compound. It's white in color, generally derived from various minerals, inert, and is very stable at high temperatures. When used as pigments, the opaque white color and the ability of it to scatter light adds to the shine of various products. 
With regard to foods, specifically candy and other sugary delicious nummy treats, it helps to decrease the ethylene production, which is a natural breakdown of the sugars, if I remember correctly, thus preserving the candy longer. It also kills microorganisms like bacteria, fungi, and viruses. So, so wait, this may be a vaccine component. Now, I just looked it up, and apparently... There was some experimentation with titanium oxide and titanium dioxide to determine if it would kill the COVID virus, and apparently there was some measure of success. Interesting, but I'm not digging any further into that. Although the claim is that the nanoparticle can pass through our systems, Chemical.ie says that the particle size for the food-grade version, 200 to 300 nanometers, is 99% pure and considered very safe. That said, they do state that there are some who believe the smallest of the particles passing through the system can cause inflammatory or allergic reactions, death of cells due to oxidative stress, or potential chronic health conditions such as cataracts. France has banned the substance, the Parliament of the European Union is banning it in August, as I stated, but the FDA has not banned it. The Titanium Dioxide Manufacturing Association has claimed that the food-grade version has been thoroughly tested and no links between ingesting it and illness have been found, and the European Food Safety Authority has confirmed that it's not a safety concern. Back to the lawsuit. The claim is that it violates the state's, remember California, consumer protection laws. So what do we see here? The European Union, France... California, and some sue-happy-woke Karen that's jonesing for Skittles, says it's unsafe. The FDA says it's safe in small quantities, which is apparently all you need, and the manufacturers and the European Food Safety Authority says it's safe. Now I can tell you this, being a 43-year-old man, I can't even begin to quantify how many Skittles I've eaten in my day. I don't eat many anymore, however, I won't turn them down, and I love every fruity, chewy, rainbowy bite. But when I was a kid, I used to take a little of my allowance and routinely purchase the one-pound bag, which they now call a share size, but back then I called a two-to-three-days tops size. One of my dad's favorite stories to tell about me that I somewhat remember was a family vacation on the road where I ate a lot of Skittles, then needed him to pull over as I leaned out the car door and puked the rainbow. Eh, still good. So, with a fairly hefty ingestion of Skittles, my brain still seems to be purple sink monkeys, and I had no allergic reactions, and although I use very low magnification readers now, because of the 40s years, my eyes are not cataracted over and work very well. I know I'm just one data point, but have you heard of this problem before? A bunch of candy lovers that are falling apart, not from diabetes, dropping like flies from this stuff? I can't speak for the specific testing methods used by those who claim this compound is a toxin, but you and I both know that everything is toxic and or causes cancer in the lab rats in California. One might claim, and one has claimed, that California rats are weak, but the general testing method is basically to pump these rats full with the equivalent of more of whatever chemical or compound they're testing than a human could or would realistically ingest in multiple lifetimes. And we all know common sense tells us a massive injection or ingestion of anything can be toxic or fatal. If you drink too much water, you'll die. 
Chemicals.ie lists the types of products that use titanium dioxide. Paint, a very popular white color pigment. Food additives, a colorant in confectionery, baking, and sauces. Sunscreen, it's used with zinc oxide and provides very good UV blocking. Coatings, the UV blocking ability allows it to help preserve coated surfaces. Adhesives, again, the UV blocking when added to plastic and rubber adhesives helps to prevent cracking and embrittlement. Ceramics, it's used in the glaze compound. Floor coverings, this would be used in products used to polish or protect the floors, enhancing the shine and the toughness. Cosmetics, this can be used as either a thickener or a pigment in many types of powders or liquids. Toothpaste, mostly used for enhancing the whiteness of the toothpaste. And soaps, again, the whiteness of the soap is desirable. So is this actually harmful? Well, bottom line is no idea. Obviously, this isn't like rat poison, but it's not like the freshest, organicaliest grown, freshliest picked apple either. I tried to search for humans harmed by titanium dioxide. The search, done in various ways, returned basically two types of results. One, news articles that discussed the Skittle lawsuit, or the general idea that it could maybe be harmful. And two, sites like PubMed or NCBI, both from the NIH, with studies about the dangerous effects and the health concerns all, of course, being derived from the tests in mice and rats, injecting them with it or having them inhale it, etc., etc. The element of titanium was discovered at the end of the 1700s, actually being titanium dioxide, which they determined a few years later. Scientists tried but weren't able to isolate pure titanium at that time. It wasn't until 1910 that titanium was able to be isolated. In 1916, titanium dioxide was made available as a commercial product as a white pigment in paints. It was approved in the U.S. for food usage in 1966 and in the European Union in 1969. And now 45 years later, they say that even a smidge can alter your DNA, hurt your organs, or damage your brain. Now, this is one of those articles that I'm just not going to draw out some deep-rooted theological gem. If you're waiting for that, well, eh, finish listening anyway, because what else do you really have to do for the next 5 to 10 minutes? No, the simple fact is that looking at the direction of the world today, I find a few things simply amazing, and I thought you might also. First, do you realize how many discoveries we're still making on this planet? Titanium dioxide was just an element, something that worked and works well for certain things. So was lead. So was mercury. So was asbestos. In fact, all of these elements have fantastic uses even still today. But they've been deemed to be naughty elements, or as my oldest niece says, naughty elements. So we have to get rid of them, or at least put them in a timeout. We've done this with many chemicals and elements, discovered, experimented, created amazing uses for them, and then someone decides it's bad, so it must be destroyed. It's amazing that the chemical manufacturing industry even exists today. There are countless people, agencies, politicians, law firms, and activist judges that are chomping at the bit to shut down every chemical known to man because they don't like it. But the reality is, if all these people, these complainers, got their way they'd be slightly upset because they wouldn't have a car, electric or otherwise, or a smartphone, or clothing, or medicine, or sweet, sweet Mountain Dew, or air conditioning, or really anything that they've grown accustomed to and seem to think 
just magically appears like manna from heaven. We'd literally be back in these so-called caveman days, trying to figure out how to generate heat from certified, organically grown, sustainable, free-range wood, trying to keep emissions from getting into the atmosphere. Chemicals and compounds are required for nearly everything we have and use today, and yes, sometimes we'll find out that what we thought was safe is not. The EU just recently announced about 12,000 chemicals they're planning on adding to their banned substance list. Every year, some chemicals are added to various banned lists. But this is an unfathomably massive amount to ban all at one time. And it's coming soon. It's simply unheard of, and it will affect many industries and products, such as all flame retardants, components of PVC plastics, diapers, cosmetics, paints, cleaning products, adhesives, lubricants, and pesticides— And the answer to this kind of ban is usually, "Ah, just figure out how to make it without that stuff. Again, unelected, lifelong bureaucrats with no real-world experience, no common sense, and a lack of logical reasoning, with a hippie and or woke agenda, telling the world how they think we should think things should be done. Another amazing thing, again regarding the discoveries we're still making, is how anyone can believe in evolution or alien races. Let me explain. Per evolutionist theory, Homo sapiens are between one-half and three-quarters of a million years old. But despite that massively long timeline, we were still essentially cavemen just 15,000 or so years ago. But we always seem to think that aliens evolved quickly and evolved the ability by now to port their way through wormholes in space or fly at speeds approaching the speed of light. But in over half a million years, we, Homo sapiens, basically did nothing. Is that even close to logical? I mean, seems to me if our species is that old, we should be much, much more advanced than we are. Right? Again, from my logical mind, it makes no sense that we're still creating and discovering as much as we are today. Seeing how technologically backward, as compared to those aliens, we are today, but looking at the exponential trajectory we're on of an increasing rate of acquiring knowledge, how are we not wormholing it through space by now? Or at least the proud owners of one of those Black & Decker instant pizza rehydrators like in Back to the Future. But if you put our timeline at about 6,000 years, with a massive bottleneck of discovery and invention about 4,500 years ago, I can fathom the quantity of discoveries being made and the technological position we're in today. Finally, a bit more close to home regarding this article. When will companies learn that they can't win the game? Ever. Take Skittles, or more accurately, the parent company Mars. They agreed in 2016 to remove titanium dioxide from their candy. They allegedly haven't done it yet. So now you've got someone looking for a payout, believing they're saving humanity by suing them. But will removing the trace amounts of the compound be enough to satisfy the agenda-driven woke lemmings? (laughs) No. Remember, candy, and more accurately, sugar, uh, it's all bad for you. It really needs to go bye-bye. And corporations are evil and never pay their fair share. So you know, tax them more. And manufacturing creates pollution, so they should be destroyed. Plus, how much are they paying the actual operators per hour? And whatever the answer is, is that all? Do you want them to starve to death? Because it seems like you do. Fight for $1,500 per hour. 
Additionally, the CEO is probably super rich, and the company is probably just wanting to make a profit for the greedy shareholders. They should probably all be guillotined. I'd also like to take a peek at their top brass, board of directors, every single person in engineering, every scientist, everyone in HR or admin, operations, maintenance, janitorial. Is there representation for all 100 plus genders, plus people who think they're puppies and kitties, and whatever else? Can we please for once embrace diversity? The problem when you get into the woke game is that you can never win. Were I the CEO of Skittles Corporation of America Incorporated, I would have told my lawyers to tell the suing lawyers to go pound sand. If it's approved for use and it meets my need, and others are still using the compound in question quite readily, eh, I'm going to use it too. Don't like it? Find a different rainbow to suck on. Did you know, and this is a fun dinner party fact you can pull out at the right time, you don't actually have to purchase or eat Skittles. Simply amazing, right? This is why I'll never be CEO. Well, I mean, that and many, many other reasons regarding, you know, things like talent and demeanor, personality, IQ, skills, knowledge, etc., etc. All that being said, it is fun to watch the left eat their own at a comparable rate of me downing the one-pounder bag. This is what inevitably happens when you unhitch yourself from any sort of anchoring truth. Skittles, for three consecutive virtue-signaling years now, has taken the month of June, you know, the month where we're all just a little gayer, and colored their Skittles white. Because as we all know, in June, only one rainbow matters. And it ain't the seven-colored real rainbow that Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis is trying to reclaim. It's the six-colored rainbow of gayosity. Now, let me point out a few funny things here. I said that Skittles went white the last three years. That's not entirely true. They did that for two years, but this year they went gray. And why? Because white is oppressive and racist. I'm not kidding. Skittles gave up their rainbow to show how gay they can be, only to be blasted for being good and gay, but also supremacist, racist, and oppressive. And what about that six-color rainbow? I mean, the uber-talented but minimally creative gay artisans left out the color indigo, which, let's be honest, is easily the gayest-sounding color on the real rainbow. But even that's not good enough anymore. We have about 70 pastel colors that were expertly wedged in there to account for trannies and who knows what else. In fact, just this year, someone somewhere, and I don't care enough to relook up that article, painted their house in the gay pride rainbow motif, I'm sure the neighbors were very pleased, probably set off alarms at the Zillow headquarters due to the massive, very localized region of property values plummeting into a black hole. But guess what? Not intersectional enough. They were applauded via a golf clap for being gay, but it was suggested that maybe they should have included everyone on the newly minted everything except for white and or straight pride flag. See, when you unhitch yourself from any possible anchor of truth, you can't win. You can only lose less than the other guy, sometimes. My dad once asked me, as a point of conversation, how do we know that we're right? He was looking at the basic stated policies of the right and left political spectrum, and note that this was a number of years ago before the left just fully embraced and tongue-kissed Satan for the world to see— the left, of course, have their stated social agenda of helping everyone by handing out cash and prizes, fixing the climate that doesn't need fixing, love everyone without judgment as long as they believe what they're supposed to believe, and so on. The right has the agenda of get your butt to work, keep your gun clean, read your Bible. So 
how do we know that the political right is correct? To which I replied to him that all you need to do is play out the left's policies to their absurd end. What you find is that they all conflict with each other. There are very few that when played out to their logical conclusion can coexist, despite their bumper sticker they make for the non-thinking mouth breathers. The reality is, in order to have policy A exist in the long run, it must murder all other policies. Same with policy B, and C, and D, and so on. There's simply no way, short of the blackest of magic, which they seem to be trying to harness, that any of these can work at the same time for any more than a few short years. Conversely, I can say with confidence that there is only one rainbow. It contains seven colors, including the maligned indigo, for without it, how could we ever hope to spell Roy G. Biv? That rainbow is naturally occurring based on how the world works because God set it up that way. And as the gay pride flag will never be good enough, the real rainbow, the one that signifies God's promise to never destroy the entire world through a flood again, will never change. It will for all eternity be seven colors. Roy, or Mr. Biv to you, is eternally secure. White, be it a skin color or a candy color or a pigment, will always and forever be white. And that's all. Humans aren't, in fact, white. Even the whitest of us, we're all a shade of brown. Some of us very, very light. And that's because we have different levels of melanin in our skin. More melanin, darker brown, almost to black, but not quite. And less melanin, lighter brown, almost to a pinkish white, but not quite. In fact, the absence of melanin, which can happen because glitches in the genetic code do occur, causes albinism, which can result in essentially white skin. But what white can't ever be is racist, as the Bible tells me that all humans are one race. White also can't be oppressive, because when you take away the color of skin equals race argument, you can't have a color hold power over you. Besides, there are plenty of other reasons one group of humans can hate another group, right? And regarding the constant discovering and banning and loving and hating and using and destroying of everything based on how someone feels today, when you're anchored to the true truth, you can honestly evaluate the world around you using true science via the real scientific method and make the best choices for humanity. Case in point, remember DDT? Those that are a bit older will know about it or at least know of it. Maybe you're getting hung up on the abbreviation. Would it help if I said dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane? See? Now how many of you remember it, right? This was a fantastic insecticide. We used it in the U.S. and in Europe for quite some time, basically knocking out bugs that caused malaria, typhus, and yellow fever. But then the reality struck. The chemical, allegedly, was causing the thinning of shells of a type of falcon. So we had to ban it globally, as we could not harm a falcon. And because of that, Asia, Africa, and Latin America were deprived of this life-saving insecticide. And those three diseases and other similar bug-borne diseases kill well over a million people in these other regions annually. Now, let's take for granted that it was, in fact, DDT that was causing the falcon egg to thin. Is that worth sacrificing a million-plus humans per year? When you're anchored to the truth, you understand that a falcon is a bird. A human is an image-bearer of God. Humans come before birds. 
Maybe DDT isn't the best thing to use, but prioritizing humans, those of us that believe in the truth, we would have undertaken an effort to develop a replacement before just forcing everyone to quit cold turkey. Now, is titanium dioxide that important? No, I'd wager we could remove it from existence and it would have very little effect on humanity or the globe, but the concept is the same. We shouldn't be making decisions based on whims, feelings, agenda, and fake biased pseudoscience. If we had a society that was anchored to the truth, where we could trust that scientists were doing actual science, corporations were focused on not only making a profit, but also loving their neighbor, and government agencies had their priorities aligned to glorifying God first, doing what's best for his image bearers next, protecting the creation so we can use it more effectively after that, we could trust what we're being told and trust the data we're given and trust the directions and plans being laid out for us. But that's not where we are. We're living in a sin-cursed world full of sinners just like you and I, some with very nefarious agendas driven by pride, lust, and greed. So what do we do? Well, we live according to the commandments. Most notably, love God with all you are, love your neighbor as yourself. We may not be in a position to change the entire world, but we can display the truth of the Bible and real Christian love in our own little sphere. And there's no reason we can't have some shiny, fruity, chewy snacks while we do it. I think we've all heard of the KISS principle, right? K-I-S-S? Keep it simple, stupid? That's a pretty good principle, but what would I need to do to get you into the kick principle today? You know, K-I-C-K. Keep it complex, knucklehead. <laughs> I know, terrible. That. Anyway, moving on. Industry, at least in the United States, and from my experience, the entire globe, follows, if not the exact acronym, definitely the principle of KISS. In the world of manufacturing, there's no need to create a Rube Goldberg machine for absolutely everything. From a professional standpoint, the less complexity built into something, the more easily it's operated, it's more easily maintained, more repairable, more reliable in general. Of course, complexity is a relative thing, as things like airplanes are very, very complex, but they need to be. Basic bicycles are not complex, unless you're a serious bicyclist, a racer, a professional. A typical bike is very simple, and they last forever. And the KISS principle can apply all over the place, not just machines, but also processes, procedures, systems, etc., etc. In the engineering design world, very basically, this all starts with identifying the need. This is usually followed by identifying what a solution would require, the customer requirements, if you will, for the solution. Then we move into the solution space, coming up with at least one, but oftentimes multiple possible solutions. Those are evaluated as to how well they satisfy the customer requirements, which will narrow down the potential options. And then you start to evaluate the best solution, the one that most closely fills the need, fulfilling all or as many as possible of the customer requirements, while being the most practical, the most simple, and the most cost-effective. And that brings us to our article today, found on NPR.org, headline, Bulletproof Safety Pods for Schools Draw the Internet's Ire, an Expert Weighs In. So a company called National Safety Shelters manufactures what they call safety pods. These were originally developed for schools, generally in Tornado Alley, to install in each classroom for students and teachers to lock themselves into in the event a tornado strike was possible. 
After the shooting at Sandy Hook in 2012, they redesigned the shelters using, quote, NIJ Ballistic Level 3 steel to make them resistant to handguns, rifles, and shotguns. Now, when I think of pod, I think of a small personal space, but these are essentially long, narrow steel boxes or closets. From the pictures I saw, they're basically constructed, I'm guessing probably anchored to the foundation, and they're set along a wall in the classroom with a single door, some shielded air vents, top and bottom, at points along the length of the pod. The intent is that if an active shooting event occurs, or if a tornado is coming, the teacher can get the kids and him or herself into the pod, closing and locking the door from the inside. Now, although a fairly simple concept and definitely mechanically simple, this is more involved than just putting a box in the classroom. Per the National Safety Shelter's website, the average cost per classroom is fifteen dollars to $30,000. And they note, quote, The above estimate method does not include shipping and installation and is for a general budget estimate only. Actual cost will vary and could be higher or lower depending on numerous factors, such as the number of lower grade classrooms, K through 6, versus higher grade classrooms, 7 through 12. Arrangements made for installation, local trained crew versus an already experienced crew. Special classrooms, such as a band room or library, may require specially configured shelters, cubic design, rather than the inline design, and current market conditions. So what would be your final cost? (laughs) Oh, I have no idea. But with everything they're saying, knowing that in the industrial world you can pretty much double the purchase price to install something, you could probably easily figure forty dollars to $50,000 per classroom. Now you may say... Is there any price that's too high to pay to keep our kids safe? To which I'd say, yeah. I mean, emotionally manipulative arguments are fine, but we also need to live in the land of reality. If that were really true, then I'm sure there are even better solutions that cost multiples of that to keep our kids safe. In fact, one child on the promo video from their website, from a a school in Arkansas that went all in installing these pods, said that she felt safer at school than at home. So... Why are we all not getting one of these pods for the house if there's no price too great? My question is, do these make sense in the first place? What risk are we actually mitigating by spending millions of dollars to install these pods? And is there a better alternative, either more simple or less costly or more effective or a combination of those? Well, I wasn't the only one that had some questions. So did Amy Klinger, a school safety expert and the director of programs for the Educators School Safety Network. She apparently believes that running to install these pods is revealing a larger issue. And I would say, yes, yes, thank you. It, It is. It certainly is. She said, quote, the problem is that we tend to respond to events like the tragedy in Uvalde with a quick solution. Let's do a quick fix. Let's buy something really fast. And we tend to look at something shiny and go, hey, let's buy that thing. Oh, oh my, yes. Keep speaking sweet nothings, Ms. Klinger. Then she goes on, quote, so having a fancy mechanism wouldn't have changed anything. So I think that's the problem with buying stuff. It makes people feel better, but it actually makes your school less safe because it creates the illusion of safety when you don't really have it. Oh, yes, Amy, that's right. I might be in love right now. 
And she continues, quote, the safety pods look great for situations like tornadoes, but what about safety situations that go beyond that? Like if a student is having an allergic reaction or if a bomb goes off in the hallway or if a teacher drops dead in the classroom. In those situations, training will be the only thing to help anyone in the important moments following those scenarios. Oh, uh, wait a minute. Miss <laughs> Klinger, what? Exactly what? Huh. That was a great ride while it lasted. I think I'm going to have to break this one off, though. I mean, what is she talking about? You can't just spew out all sorts of randomness to try to prove some sort of point. This is a pod to theoretically protect children from a tornado or a shooter. This literally has nothing to do with a teacher dropping dead or a kid having an allergic reaction. Do you want the pod people to develop a pod with contingencies, devices, and medical supplies for all possible scenarios? I realize she's got to ensure we know that she's the safety expert, you know, by saying safety things. But if you can't focus, how can you accomplish anything? Well, before she went off the rails, she actually made some very valid points. One of my pet peeves, a nails-on-the-chalkboard level of annoyance, is knee-jerk reactions. I've dealt with those my entire career. I remember one instance where I was asked to shadow a mechanic to capture the procedure for taking a lid off of a large box that had a diverter mechanism inside. Basically, one pipe coming in and a transition piping piece that could be remotely switched to transfer into one of two other existing outlet pipes. He was supposed to replace the swivel boots on this mechanism, and that's what I was supposed to capture, the procedure to do that. The mechanic told me that this was one of the worst jobs, as it was a tight space, terrible orientation, and very difficult to change. And this was done something like quarterly, if I remember right, and there were six or eight of these boxes, so I did a little digging. The equipment had been in operation for about 30 years or more. One time, about 10 years prior, one of the boots in one of the boxes had failed, and apparently we blew a fairly large quantity of powder onto the ground. Now, it was a non-hazardous, water-soluble powder. It was an annoyance when you boil it down. But because of that, they decided that every one of these boots needed to be changed four times a year, when they hadn't had a single failure for 20 years or 10 years since. And after discovering that, I was able to start the process of alleviating the pointless, busy work created by someone who decided to institute a knee-jerk solution rather than analyzing and addressing the issue. So Ms. Klinger is right. The Uvalde shooting makes everyone instantly jump to the solution that will fix the problem. Think Congress, President Vegetable, and gun bans. Now, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with this company marketing these pods. You know, good for them. I would have a problem if my tax dollars went to purchasing these for my school district, and I have a kid in school currently. Here's the reality. In 2018, the U.S. Census Bureau stated that there were approximately 76.8 million students enrolled in school. Assuming the 2021-22 school year had similar numbers, let's say 70 million to be a little more conservative, although very tragic, 70-plus million students went to school approximately 180 days each, and one day a psychotic evil person killed 19 children. Now... There are so many factors as to why and how he killed 19. They're coming out daily. Factors that I believe, unless some new information comes out, should see a large number of the Uvalde Police Department put behind bars for manslaughter. But the reality is still 19 students. When doing the math, my kid, 
and every public school child has a 0% chance of being shot and killed while in school. And the same logic can be applied to tornadoes. How many schools have been devastated by tornadoes with mass casualties? Without looking it up, very few. And not many kids. Again, statistically, the possibility that any of our kids goes to school and is killed by a tornado is zero. Now, I'm not taking away from the Uvalde tragedy. I'm not saying that any of these things can't happen. But from a purely mathematical perspective, school children are not in danger. That being said, what we also know is that nearly all schools in the country are gun-free, weapon-free zones. According to the Crime Prevention Research Center, more than 98% of all mass shootings have been in gun-free zones. Now, I know that number is disputed, but the dispute comes from the question, do we consider gang and or drug-related violence, and do we consider shootings while committing a crime? The Crime Prevention Research Center does not count those in their calculations, and I'd have to agree, as those are completely different situations. Other groups count everything they can find in order to make it look like gun-free zones work, and they simply don't. The reality is, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun nearly every time is a good guy with a gun, be it a policeman or a civilian. With regard to school shootings, locking doors, bulletproof glass, and even safety pods are all fine. They all have their uses, I guess. But the only true way, per the data, to stop the desire of a mentally deranged, murderous person, the only way to stop someone that's attempting to or has actually gained entry is good guys with guns. Most of these evil people want the fame, even if they die in the act. They don't want to step through a door and be shot dead before they can carry out their plan. The best way to stop people from attempting to shoot up a school is to make it very clear that everyone that wants to be has been trained and armed and will shoot to kill. Only the most mentally deranged will actually try to breach that defense, and that person will be going home in a body bag before he gets five feet into the school. Problem solved. The perception of a gun on the other side of the door stops many crimes. Statistics show that if you fly an American flag outside your house, most criminals will pass you by, because flag flyers are most likely gun owners. The world is an evil place, sin is rampant, and there are some that commit the most heinous of sins from a human perspective. This will never stop being true. It's been true since Cain killed Abel. To think that putting up signs, taking away legally owned guns, making more laws, or placing ourselves in a large metal box is the answer is silly. Criminals that want to kill will find a way. In fact, kids trapped in a relatively small metal box with air vents could easily be done away with with a variety of gases pumped into the box. And we're not talking about weapons-grade gases. We're talking nitrogen or carbon dioxide. It would not take long to flood the box with a poisonous gas. From a root cause analysis point of view, all of the measures that schools have taken help to address the effect of someone with their mind already made up to shoot up a school. But those are addressing the problem too far down the analysis diagram. The best way to address it is to remove the desire to shoot up the school in the first place. Unfortunately, we don't always have warning signs or those signs are missed or ignored. So saying we can stop this using counselors and psychiatrists is fine for those that are discovered before stepping too far into the abyss. Rather than spending millions of dollars for each school district to put metal boxes in the classrooms, 
why don't we spend a fraction of that to arm and train any and every teacher, admin, janitor, coach, and assistant at the school? Why don't we have a way for a parent to pre-register to carry whenever they come into the school? Why don't we make large signs, put them on every entrance, every gate that says the staff has been trained and will not hesitate to kill anyone they perceive to be an imminent threat to the safety of anyone on the campus? The Bible makes two things clear. We are supposed to use wisdom, and nobody has the right to take a life without a cause. We absolutely have a mandate to protect ourselves and each other from crazed murderers by any means. And by any means, means we need to use wisdom to figure out the best way and then do that thing. To fart around with door locks and metal boxes and yet leave people inside the building defenseless where our locks left unlocked or our boxes not piled into fast enough is unwise and frankly, in my opinion, complicit to murder. To mandate a law that you are not allowed to protect yourself or the kids is just as evil, in my opinion. It shows a great disdain for human life. It shows a massive distrust in the people that are being entrusted with our children. And it shows a humanist, unbiblical lack of wisdom, common sense, and logic. There are schools right now that have armed their teachers or allowed them to be armed following specific training protocols. A few schools. I'd be willing to wager that we never hear of a mass shooting or an attempted shooting at these schools. God gave us the amazing ability to use logic and reason, and much like all other gifts we've been given, we ignore, misuse, or abuse that. It's time to use those wonderful tools we've been granted to make the best decision, not the politically expedient, the virtue signaling, or the humanist decision. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.